<clears throat> hey, what's going on? This is Madam Butterfly, and you are listening to another episode of Frequency Bay. So I wanted to make sure that I got into um, the audiobook for this month because it is a it's a it's it's a it's a pretty good audiobook. Human use of human beings. Cybernetics and Society by Norbert Wiener. I hope I said his last name right. Um, but anyway, I, I certainly want to hop into this particular audiobook because I think it has a lot to offer, among many things. I think that um, it falls right into alignment with the uh, overall aesthetic of my, um, of my, my, Facebook and my um, overall podcast. So uh, I definitely wanted to do that. So we'll be here for the next hour too. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. If you decided to click on and give me a listen today. Give me a second to pull it up. managed to forget my dang to put my dang phone on um forget to put my phone on do not disturb and every time i hop on on uh my podcast or anything to do something that's when somebody wants to reach out to me and say something anyway uh back to back to this fucking audiobook um, I personally haven't got the opportunity to um, check out this uh, podcast, or not podcast, but audiobook, just because I've been, um, if you didn't know, my uh, oldest brother was recently murdered, and uh, I've kind of had to take a second back from everything and um, be with my family, so... There's that, and my mother's currently in California, and she is uh, claiming my brother's body with her husband and one of my middle brothers, and I have to call her to get some updates, but let's go ahead and get into this Thus, he is really as dangerous as a potential armorer of the new scientific war of the future. The neat separation of pure and applied mathematics is only a mathematician's selfing illusion. Wiener came to address the alternative to innocence, namely, taking responsibility.
after he himself had during World War II worked on a mathematical theory of prediction intended to enhance the effectiveness of anti-aircraft fire, and developed a powerful statistical theory of communication which would put modern communication engineering on a rigorous mathematical footing, any pretense of harmlessness was out of the question for him. From the time of the end of the war until his death in 1964, Wiener applied his penetrating and innovative mind to identifying and elaborating on a relation of high technology to people which is benign or, in his words, to the human, rather than the inhuman use of human beings. In doing so during the years when the Cold War was raging in the United States, he found an audience among the generally educated public. However, most of his scientific colleagues, offended or embarrassed by Wiener's views and especially by his open refusal to engage in any more work related to the military, saw him as an eccentric at best and certainly not to be taken seriously except in his undeniably brilliant, strictly mathematical, researches. Albert Einstein, who regarded Wiener's attitude towards the military as exemplary, was in those days similarly made light of as unschooled in political matters. Undaunted. Wiener proceeded to construct a practical and comprehensive attitude towards technology rooted in his basic philosophical outlook, and presented it in lucid language. For him technologies were viewed not so much as applied science, but rather as applied social and moral philosophy. Others have been critical of technological developments and seen the Industrial Revolution as a mixed blessing. Unlike most of these critics, Wiener was simultaneously an irrepressibly original non-stop thinker in mathematics, the sciences, and high technology and equally an imaginative critic from a social, historical and ethical perspective of the uses of his own and his colleagues' handiwork. Because he gave rather unchecked rein to both of these inclinations, Wiener's writings generate a particular tension and have a special fascination. Now, four decades later, we see that the tenor of his comments on science, technology, and society were on the whole prophetic and ahead of his time. In the intervening years his subject matter, arising out of the tension between technical fascination and social conscience, has become a respectable topic for research and scholarship. Even leading universities have caught up with it and created courses of study and academic departments with names such as Science Studies, Technology Studies or Science, Technology, and Society. His prediction of an imminent communication revolution in which the message would be a pivotal notion, and the associated technological developments would be in the area of communication, computation, and organization, was clear-sighted indeed. The interrelation between science and society via technologies is only one of the two themes underlying the human use of human beings. The other derives as much from Wiener's personal philosophy as from theoretical physics. Although he was a mathematician, his personal philosophy was rooted in existentialism, rather than in the formal logical-analytical philosophy so prominent in his day and associated with the names of Russell, Moore, Ramsey, Wittgenstein, and Ayer. For Wiener life entailed struggle, but it was not the class struggle as a means to social progress emphasized by Marxists, nor was it identical with the conflict Freud saw between the individual and society. In his own words, we are swimming upstream against a great torrent of disorganization, which tends to reduce everything to the heat death of equilibrium and sameness described in the second law of thermodynamics. What Maxwell, Boltzmann, and Gibbs meant by this heat death in physics has a counterpart in the ethic of Kierkegaard, who pointed out that we live in a chaotic moral universe. In this, 
our main obligation is to establish arbitrary enclaves of order and system. These enclaves will not remain there indefinitely by any momentum of their own after we have once established them. We are not fighting for a definitive victory in the indefinite future. It is the greatest possible victory to be, to continue to be, and to have been. This is no defeatism, it is rather a sense of tragedy in a world in which necessity is represented by an inevitable disappearance of differentiation. The declaration of our own nature and the attempt to build an enclave of organization in the face of nature's overwhelming tendency to disorder is an insolence against the gods and the iron necessity that they impose. Here lies tragedy, but here lies glory too. Even when we discount the romantic, heroic overtones in that statement, Wiener is articulating what, as he saw and experienced it, makes living meaningful. The adjective arbitrary before order and system helps to make the statement appropriate for many, it might have been made by an artist as readily as by a creative scientist. Wiener's outlook on life is couched in the language of conflict and heroic struggle against overwhelming natural tendencies. But he was talking about something very different from the ruthless exploitation, even destruction, of nature and successfully bending it to human purposes, which is part of the legacy, part of the 19th century heroic ideal, of Western man. Wiener in his discussion of human purposes, recognizing feedbacks and larger systems which include the environment, had moved far away from that ideal and closer to an ideal of understanding and, both consciously and effectively, of collaborating with natural processes. I expect that Wiener would have welcomed some more recent developments in physics, as his thinking was already at times tending in that direction. Since his day developments in the field of statistical mechanics have come to modify the ideas about how orderly patterns, for example, the growth of plants and animals and the evolution of ecosystems, arise in the face of the second law of thermodynamics. As Wiener anticipated, the notions of information, feedback, and nonlinearity of the differential equations have become increasingly important in biology. But beyond that, Ilya Prigozhin and his co-workers in Belgium have more recently made a convincing case that natural systems which are either far from thermodynamic equilibrium initially, or which fluctuate, may not return to equilibrium at all. Instead they continue to move still further away from equilibrium towards a different, increasingly complex, and orderly, but nevertheless stable pattern, not necessarily static, but possibly cyclic. According to the American physicist Willard Gibbs' way of thinking, the stable state of a system, equilibrium, is independent of its detailed initial conditions, yet that simplification no longer holds for systems finding stability far from equilibrium. This is an explicit mechanism quite different from that of A. Maxwell Demon, explained in Chapter 2, the mechanism assumed necessary in Wiener's day. It is more nearly related to Wiener's notion of positive feedback, which he tended to see as only disruptive and destructive, rather than as leading to complex stable structures. The results obtained by the Prigozhin group show the creation of orderly patterns, natural counter-trends to the tendency towards disorganization, to be stronger and more ordinary and commonplace than a sole reliance on mechanisms of the Maxwell demon type would suggest. Sensitivity to initial conditions is also a prominent feature of chaos theory, currently an active field of research. If, however, we now extend Wiener's analogy from statistical mechanics and incorporate the findings of the Prigozhin group, 
according to which natural and spontaneous mechanisms other than just the Maxwell demon generate organization and differentiation, this suggests a shift in emphasis from the human fight against the increase of entropy to create local enclaves of order to a more cooperative endeavor which to a considerable extent occurs naturally and of its own accord. It is a subtle shift that can, however, make large differences. Yet to be explored, these differences appear to echo disagreements that some modern feminists, neo-Taoists, and ecologists have with classical Greek concepts of the heroic and the tragic. Wiener's status, which he strongly prized, was that of an independent scientifically knowledgeable intellectual. He avoided accepting funds from government agencies or corporations that might in any way compromise his complete honesty and independence. Nor did he identify himself with any political, social, or philosophical group, but spoke and wrote simply as an individual. He was suspicious of honors and prizes given for scientific achievement. After receiving the accolade of election to the National Academy of Sciences, he resigned, lest membership in that select, exclusive body of scientists corrupt his autonomous status as outsider vis-a-vis -vis the American scientific establishment. He was of the tradition in which it is the intellectual's responsibility to speak truth to power. This was in the post-war years, when the U.S. government and many scientists and science administrators were celebrating the continuing partnership between government and science, government providing the funds and scientists engaging in research. Wiener remained aloof and highly critical of that peacetime arrangement. More precisely, he tried to stay aloof but he would not separate himself completely because for many years he remained a professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, an institution heavily involved in that partnership. As was his nature, he continued to talk to colleagues about his own fertile ideas, whether they dealt with mathematics, engineering, or social concerns. The Human Use of Human Beings, first published in 1950, was a sequel to an earlier volume, Cybernetics, or Control and Communication in the Animal and the Machine. That earlier volume broke new ground in several respects. First of all, it was a report on new scientific and technical developments of the 1940s, especially on information theory, communication theory, and communications technology, models of the brain and general-purpose computers. Secondly, it extended ideas and used metaphors from physics and electrical engineering to discuss a variety of topics including neuropathology, politics, society, learning and the nature of time. I, so this is, I'm, I'm not sure if this is, I don't think this is the first chapter yet. Um, I think this is just a prelude, but um, I really, really enjoy books like this. And I want to talk a little bit about why I enjoy books like this. Uh, I'm sitting in front of about, I, I'm sitting in front of about six different screens right now, and uh, I decided to pull up a little bit of information about this particular book on Wikipedia, and uh, there's a specific section where he talks about forms and patterns, which is like, fuck yeah. But anyway, uh, it says the individuality of a being is a certain... Uh, intricate form but an enduring substance in order to understand an organized organism it must be uh, thought of as a pattern which maintains itself through homeostasis life continues by maintaining an internal balance of various factors such as temperature and molecule structure 
while the material substances that combine a living being may be con uh, may be consequently uh, replaced by nearly identical ones, an organism continues functioning with the same identity as long as the pattern is kept sufficiently intact. Since patterns can be transmuted, uh, modified, or duplicated, they are therefore a kind of information based on this. Uh, Wiener suggests that it could be stereologically theor uh, possible to transmit the entity of a living organism as a message which is practically indistinguishable from the concept of physical teleportation. Along the limits, although the limits and the obstacles to such a process would be great because of the enormous amount of information embodied in a person and the difficulty of reading or writing it. That to me is fucking amazing. Um, forms and patterns are certainly things that we see in our everyday lives. And if you're trying to dissect someone, that's certainly a place where you want to start forms and patterns, um, and then another section that I wanted to talk about maybe was, was um, science, law, and industry, um, and it goes as follows. According to Wiener, the progress of human society as we conceive it today did not exist 400 years ago, but now we have entered a special period in the history of the world. I do agree. The process of recent centuries has changed our world so dramatically that humans are being forced to adapt to the new environmental order or disorder that we are still creating and experiencing. Wiener believes that the quickness and range of adaptability has, al has always been the strong point of the human species, which distinguishes us from even the most intelligent of other living creatures. Our uh, advancement in technology has created new opportunities along with new with new uh, restrictions, absolutely. Increasingly, increasingly better sensory uh, mechanisms will allow uh, machines to react to changes in stimuli and adapt more efficiently in their surroundings. The type of machine will, will also be useful in factory assemblies, giving humans the freedom to um, survive and use their creative uh, abilities constructively. Medicine can benefit from robotic uh, advancements in the design of post uh, prostitutes and the handicap, absolutely, whether mentioned, uh, the, the recorder, a device from Bell Telephone Company that creates visual speech, has discussed the possibility of creating an anti, of creating an uh, automated uh, prosthesis that inter inputs speech directly into the brain for processing, essentially giving, essentially giving deaf individuals the ability to hear speak and speech again. Uh, progress in these areas is ongoing and rapid, uh, exemplified by such devices as the uh, Plato meter, a new device created to replace the a damaged larynx. It uses a speech a speech synthesizer to create words based on its ability to monitor tongue, to monitor tongue movements. This device uh, effortless, effortless, effortlessly rids people from damaged larynx of the robotic tones 
uh, associated with artificial speech synthesizers. Like the one famously used by disabled scientist Stephen Hawking, uh, enabling people to hear, to have more uh, natural social interactions. Uh, machines in uh, machines in Wiener's opinion are meant to interact harmoniously with humankind or with humanity and provide uh, respite from the individual traps we have uh, made for ourselves. Wiener describes the automate as inherently necessary to uh, humanity's sociability, as sociability evolution. People could be free to expand their minds, pursue artistic careers while automating, while automation takes over assembly like production to create necessary commodities. These machines must be used for the benefit of man, for increasing the leisures and enriching the spiritual life rather than merely for profit and the worship of the machine as a new bizarre task. Um, I think personally that, um, when it comes to electronics, it's something that we walk a fine line as, as the human species and uh, the majority of the human species, in my opinion, is not ready for something like this. And the way in which we adapt, I think says a lot about who we are as a species on a lot of different levels. That's all, all, that's all I'm going to say. I'm going to keep it there. I'm going to get back into the uh, audio book. Wiener had been an active participant in pre-war interdisciplinary seminars. After the war, he regularly took part in a series of small conferences of mathematicians and engineers, which were also attended by biologists, anthropologists, sociologists, psychologists, and psychiatrists, in which the set of ideas subsumed under cybernetics was explored in the light of these various disciplines. At these conferences Wiener availed himself of the convenient opportunity to become acquainted with current research on a broad range of topics outside of his speciality. Already in his cybernetics Wiener had raised questions about the benefits of the new ideas and technologies, Concluding pessimistically, there are those who hope that the good of a better understanding of and society which is offered by this new field of work may anticipate and outweigh the incidental contribution we are making to the concentration of power. I write in 1947, and I am compelled to say that it is a very slight hope. The book was a rarity also in that, along with the technical material, he discussed ethical issues at length. The human use of human beings is a popularization of cybernetics, omitting the forbidding mathematics, though with a special emphasis on the description of the human and the social. The present volume is a reprint of the second, 1954, edition, which differs significantly from the original hardcover edition. The notable reorganization of the book and the changes made deserve attention. In the first edition we read that the purpose of this book is both to explain the potentialities of the machine in fields which up to now have been taken to be purely human, and to warn against the dangers of a purely selfish exploitation of these possibilities in a world in which to human beings human things are all important. 
After commenting critically about patterns of social organization in which all orders come from above, and none return, an ideal held by many fascists, strong men in business, and government, he explains, I wish to devote this book first edition to a protest against this inhuman use of human beings. The second edition, in contrast, as stated in the preface, is organized around Wiener's other major theme, the impact of the Gibshian point of view on modern life, both through the substantive changes it has made in working science, and through the changes it has made indirectly in our attitude to life in general. The second edition, where the framework is more philosophical and less political, appears to be presented in such a way as to make it of interest not only in 1954, but also for many years to come. Teehe writing and the organization are a bit tighter and more orderly than in the first edition. It also includes comment on some exemplifications of cybernetics, e.g., the work of Ross Ashby, that had come to Wiener's attention only during the early 1950s. Yet, even though several chapters are essentially unchanged, something was lost in going from the first to the second edition. I miss the bluntness and pungency of some of the comments in the earlier edition, which apparently were cleaned up for the second. The cause celebration in 1954 in the USA was the Oppenheimer case. J. Robert Oppenheimer, the physicist who had directed the building of atom bombs during World War II, had subsequently come to disagree with the politically dominant figures in the government who were eager to develop and build with the greatest possible speed hydrogen bombs a thousand times more powerful than the atom bombs which had devastated Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Oppenheimer urged delay, as he preferred that a further effort be made to negotiate with the Soviet Union before proceeding with such an irreversible escalation of the arms race. This policy difference lay behind the dramatic Oppenheimer hearings, humiliating proceedings at the height of the anti-communist McCarthy era, and of the U.S. Congressional Un-American Activities Committee, leading to, absurdly, the labeling of Oppenheimer as a security risk. In that political atmosphere it is not surprising for a publisher to prefer a different focus than the misuse of the latest technologies, or the dangers of capitalist exploitation of technologies for profit. Wiener himself was at that time going on a lecture tour to India and was then occupied with several other projects, such as writing the second volume of his autobiography, The Mathematical Analysis of Brain Waves, Sensory Prosthesis, and a New Formulation of Quantum Theory. He did not concern himself a great deal with the revision of a book he had written several years earlier, it would be more characteristic of him to write a new book or add a new chapter, rather than revise a book already written although he must have agreed to all revisions and editorial changes. At the end of the book, in both editions, Wiener compares the Catholic Church with the Communist Party, and both with Cold War government activities in capitalist America. The criticisms of America in these last few pages of the first edition, see appendix to this introduction, are, in spite of one brief pointed reference to McCarthyism, largely absent in the editions. The chapter Progress and Entropy, for example, is much longer in the first edition. The section on the history of inventions within that chapter is more detailed. The chapter also deals with such topics as the depletion of resources and American dependence on other nations for oil, copper, and tin, and the possibility of an energy crisis unless new inventions obviate it. It reviews vividly the progress in medicine and anticipates new problems such as the increasing use of synthetic foods that may contain minute quantities of carcinogens. 
These and other discursive excursions, peripheral to the main line of argument of the book, are omitted in the present edition. The human use of human beings was not Wiener's last word on the subject. He continued to think and talk and write. In 1959 he addressed and provoked a gathering of scientists by his reflections and analysis of some moral and technical consequences of automation, science, Vol. 131, p. 1358, 1960, and in his last book, God and Golem, Inc., 1964, he returned to ethical concerns from the perspective of the creative scientist or engineer. It was Wiener's lifelong obsession to distinguish the human from the machine, having recognized the identity of patterns of organization and of many functions which can be performed by either, but in the human use of human beings it is his intention to place his understanding of the people-slash-machine's identity-slash-dichotomy within the context of his generous and humane social philosophy. Cybernetics had originated from the analysis of formal analogies between the behavior of organisms and that of electronic and mechanical systems. The mostly military technologies new in his day, which today we call artificial intelligence, highlighted the potential resemblance between certain elaborate machines and people. Academic psychology in North America was in those days still predominantly behaviorist. The cybernetic machines, such as general-purpose computers, suggested a possibility as to the nature of mind. Mind was analogous to formal structure and organization, or the software aspect of a reasoning and perceiving machine that could also issue instructions leading to actions. Thus the long-standing mind-brain duality was overcome by a materialism which encompassed organization, messages, and information in addition to stuff and matter. But the subjective, an individual's cumulative experience, sensations, and feelings, including the subjective experience of being alive, is belittled seen only within the context of evolutionary theory as providing information useful for survival to the organism. If shorn of Wiener's benign social philosophy, what remains of cybernetics can be used within a highly mechanical and dehumanizing, even militaristic, outlook. The fact that the metaphor of a sophisticated automaton is so heavily employed invites thinking about humans as in effect machines. Many who have learned merely the technical aspects of cybernetics have used them, and do so today, for ends which Wiener abhorred. It is a danger he foresaw, would have liked to obviate and, although aware of how little he could do in that regard, valiantly tried to head off. The technological developments in themselves are impressive, but since most of us already have to bear with a glut of promotional literature it is more to the point here to frame discussion not in the promoter's terms, what the new machine can do, but in a more human and social framework. How is the machine affecting people's lives? Or still more pointedly, who reaps a benefit from it? Wiener urged scientists and engineers to practice the imaginative forward glance so as to attempt assessing the impact of an innovation, even before making it known. However, once some of the machines or techniques were put on the market, a younger generation with sensitivity to human and social impacts could report empirically where the shoe pinches. Even though such reports may not suffice to radically change conventional patterns of deployment of technologies, which after all express many kinds of political and economic interests, they at least document what happens and help to educate the public. As long as their authors avoid an a priori pro-technology or anti-technology bias, they effectively carry on where Wiener left off. 
Among such reports we note Joseph Wee Eisenbaum's description of the human damage manifested in the compulsive programmer, which poses questions about appropriate and inappropriate uses of computers. Similarly David Noble has documented how the introduction of automation in the machine tool industry has resulted in a deskilling of machinists to their detriment, and has described in detail the political process by which this deskilling was brought about. These kinds of inhuman uses seem nearly subtle if placed next to the potentially most damaging use, war. The growth of communication computation automation devices and systems had made relatively small beginnings during World War II, but since then has been given high priority in U.S. government-subsidized military research and development, and in the Soviet Union as well, their proliferation in military contexts has been enormous and extensive. A proper critique would entail an analysis in depth of world politics, and especially the political relations of the two superpowers. Wiener feared that he had helped to provide tools for the centralization of power, and indeed he and his fellow scientists and engineers had. For instance, under the Reagan government many billions of dollars were spent on plans for a protracted strategic nuclear war with the Soviet Union. The technological challenge was seen to be the development of an effective C-cubed system, command, control, and communication, which would be used to destroy enemy political and command centers and at the same time, through a multitude of methods, prevent the destruction of the corresponding American centers, leaving the USA fully in command throughout the nuclear war and victorious. Some principled scientists and engineers have, in a Venarian spirit, refused to work on or have stopped working on, such mad schemes, or on implementing the politician's Star Wars fantasies. We have already alluded to Wiener's heavy use of metaphors from engineering to describe the human and the social, and his neglect of the subjective experience. In the post-war years American sociologists, anthropologists, political scientists, and psychologists tried harder than ever to be seen as scientific. They readily borrowed the engineer's idiom and many sought to learn from the engineer's or mathematician's thinking. Continental European social thinkers were far more inclined to attend to the human subject and to make less optimistic claims about their scientific expertise, but it required another decade before European thought substantially influenced the positivistic or logical empiricist predilections of the mainstream of American social scientists. A major development in academic psychology, prominent and well-funded today, relies strongly on the concept of information processing and models based on the computer. It traces its origins to the discussions on cybernetics in the post-war years and the wartime work of the British psychologist Kenneth Craig. This development, known as cognitive science, entirely ignores background contexts, the culture, the society, history, subjective experience, human feelings, and emotions. Thus it works with a highly impoverished model of what it is to be human. Such models have, however, found their challengers and critics, ranging from the journalist Gordon Rattray Taylor, The Natural History of Mind, 1979, to the psychologist James J. Gibson, the latter providing a far different approach to how humans know and perceive, The Perception of the Visual World, 1950, The Senses Considered as Perceptual Systems, 1966, The Ecological Approach to Visual Perception, 1979. If we trace the intellectual history of current thinking in such diverse fields as cellular biology, medicine, anthropology, psychiatry, ecology, and economics, 
we find that in each discipline concepts coming from cybernetics constitute one of the streams that have fed it. Cybernetics, including information theory, systems with purpose of behavior and automaton models, was part of the intellectual dialogue of the 1950s and has since mingled with many other streams, has been absorbed and become part of the conventional idiom and practice. Too many writings about technologies are dismal, narrow apologetic for special interests, and not very edifying. Yet the subject matter is intrinsically extremely varied and stimulating to an inquiring mind. It has profound implications for our day-to-day -day lives, their structure, and their quality. The social history of science and technology is a rich resource, even for imagining and reflecting on the future. Moreover the topic highlights central dilemmas in every political system. For example, how is the role of experts in advising governments related to political process? Or how is it possible to reconcile, in a capitalist economy within a democratic political structure, the unavoidable conflict between public interest and decision by a popular vote, on the one hand, and corporate decisions as to which engineering projects are profitable, on the other? We are now seeing the rise of a relatively new genre of writing about technologies and people which is interesting, concrete, open, exploratory, and confronts political issues head-on. We need this writing, for we are living in what Eliel has appropriately called a technological society. Within that genre, Wiener's books, as well as some earlier writings by Lewis Mumford, are among the few pioneering works that have become classics. The present reissue of one of these classics is cause for rejoicing. May it stimulate readers to think passionately for themselves about the human use of human beings with the kind of intellectual honesty and compassion Wiener brought to the subject. Steve J. Himes, Boston, October 1988 Appendix What follows are two documents from Norbert Wiener's writings, an open letter published in the Atlantic Monthly Magazine, January 1947 issue, and the concluding passages of The Human Use of Human Beings, 1st edition, Houghton Mifflin, 1950. A Scientist Rebels The letter which follows was addressed by one of our ranking mathematicians to a research scientist of a great aircraft corporation, who had asked him for the technical account of a certain line of research he had conducted in the war. Professor Wiener's indignation at being requested to participate in indiscriminate rearmament, less than two years after victory, is typical of many American scientists who served their country faithfully during the war. Professor of mathematics in one of our great eastern institutions, Norbert Wiener was born in Columbia, Missouri, in 1894, the son of Leo Wiener, professor of Slavic languages at Harvard University. He took his doctorate at Harvard and did his graduate work in England and in Göttingen. Today he is esteemed one of the world's foremost mathematical analysts. His ideas played a significant part in the development of the theories of communication and control which were essential in winning the war. The Editor, Atlantic Monthly Sin I have received from you a note in which you state that you are engaged in a project concerning controlled missiles, and in which you request a copy of a paper which I wrote for the National Defense Research Committee during the war. As the paper is the property of a government organization, you are of course at complete liberty to turn to that government organization for such information as I could give you. If it is out of print as you say, and they desire to make it available for you, there are doubtless proper avenues of approach to them. When, however, 
you turn to me for information concerning controlled missiles, there are several considerations which determine my reply. In the past, the comedy of scholars has made it a custom to furnish scientific information to any person seriously seeking it. However, we must face these facts. The policy of the government itself during and after the war, say in the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, has made it clear that to provide scientific information is not a necessarily innocent act, and may entail the gravest consequences. One therefore cannot escape reconsidering the established custom of the scientist to give information to every person who may inquire of him. The interchange of ideas which is one of the great traditions of science must of course receive certain limitations when the scientist becomes an arbiter of life and death. For the sake, however, of the scientist and the public, these limitations should be as intelligent as possible. The measures taken during the war by our military agencies, in restricting the free intercourse among scientists on related projects or even on the same project, have gone so far that it is clear that if continued in time of peace this policy will lead to the total irresponsibility of the scientist, and ultimately to the death of science. Both of these are disastrous for our civilization, and entail grave and immediate peril for the public. I realize, of course, that I am acting as the censor of my own ideas, and it may sound arbitrary, but I will not accept a censorship in which I do not participate. The experience of the scientists who have worked on the atomic bomb has indicated that in any investigation of this kind the scientist ends by putting unlimited powers in the hands of the people whom he is least inclined to trust with their use. It is perfectly clear also that to disseminate information about a weapon in the present state of our civilization is to make it practically certain that that weapon will be used. In that respect the controlled missile represents the still imperfect supplement to the atom bomb and to bacterial warfare. The practical use of guided missiles can only be to kill foreign civilians indiscriminately, and it furnishes no protection whatsoever to civilians in this country. I cannot conceive a situation in which such weapons can produce any effect other than extending the kamikaze way of fighting to whole nations. Their possession can do nothing but endanger us by encouraging the tragic insolence of the militant mind. If therefore I do not desire to participate in the bombing or poisoning of defenseless peoples, and I most certainly do not, I must take a serious responsibility as to those to whom I disclose my scientific ideas. Since it is obvious that with sufficient effort you can obtain my material, even though it is out of print, I can only protest pro forma in refusing to give you any information concerning my past work. However, I rejoice at the fact that my material is not readily available, inasmuch as it gives me the opportunity to raise this serious moral issue. I do not expect to publish any future work of mine which may do damage in the hands of irresponsible militarists. I am taking the liberty of calling this letter to the attention of other people in scientific work. I believe it is only proper that they should know of it in order to make their own independent decisions, if similar situations should confront them. Norbert Wiener I have indicated that freedom of opinion at the present time is being crushed between the two rigidities of the Church and the Communist Party. In the United States we are in the process of developing a new rigidity which combines the methods of both while partaking of the emotional fervor of neither. Our conservatives of all shades of opinion have somehow got together to make American capitalism and the fifth freedom of the businessman supreme throughout all the world. Our military men and our great merchant princes have looked upon the propaganda technique of the Russians, and have found that it is good. 
they have found a worthy counterpart for the GPU in the FBI, in its new role of political censor. They have not considered that these weapons form something fundamentally distasteful to humanity, and that they need the full force of an overwhelming faith and belief to make them even tolerable. This faith and belief they have nowhere striven to replace. Thus they have been false to the dearest part of our American traditions, without offering us any principles for which we may die, except a merely negative hatred of communism. They have succeeded in being un-American without being radical. To this end we have invented a new inquisition, the inquisition of teachers' oaths and of congressional committees. We have synthesized a new propaganda, lacking only one element which is common to the church and to the communist party, and that is the element of belief. We have accepted the methods, not the ideals of our possible antagonists, little realizing that it is the ideals which have given the methods whatever cogency they possess. Ourselves without faith, we presume to punish heresy. May the absurdity of our position soon perish amidst the Homeric laughter that it deserves. It is this triple attack on our liberties which we must resist, if communication is to have the scope that it properly deserves as the central phenomenon of society and if the human individual is to reach and to maintain his full stature. It is again the American worship of know-how as opposed to know-what that hampers us. We rightly see great dangers in the totalitarian system of communism. On the one hand, we have called in to combat these the assistance of a totalitarian church which is in no respect ready to accept, in support of its standards, milder means than those to which communism appeals. On the other hand, we have attempted to synthesize a rigid system to fight fire by fire, and to oppose communism by institutions which bear more than a fortuitous resemblance to communistic institutions. In this we have failed to realize that the element in communism which essentially deserves our respect consists in its loyalties and in its insistence on the dignity and the rights of the worker. What is bad consists chiefly in the ruthless techniques to which the present phase of the communist revolution has resorted. Our leaders show a disquieting complacency in their acceptance of the ruthlessness and a disquieting unwillingness to refer their acts to any guiding principles. Fundamentally, behind our counter-ruthlessness there is no adequate basis of real heartfelt assent. Let us hope that it is still possible to reverse the tide of the moment and to create a future America in which man can live and can grow to be a human being in the fullest and richest sense of the word. The Human Use of Human Beings Cybernetics and Society Norbert Wiener Preface The idea of a contingent universe The beginning of the 20th century marked more than the end of one hundred-year period and the start of another. There was a real change of point of view even before we made the political transition from the century on the whole dominated by peace, to the half-century of war through which we have just been living. This was perhaps first apparent in science, although it is quite possible that whatever has affected science led independently to the marked break which we find between the arts and literature of the 19th and those of the 20th centuries. Newtonian physics, which had ruled from the end of the 17th century to the end of the 19th with scarcely an opposing voice, described a universe in which everything happened precisely according to law, a compact, tightly organized universe in which the whole future depends strictly upon the whole past. Such a picture can never be either fully justified or fully rejected experimentally and belongs in large measure to a conception of the world which is supplementary to experiment but in some ways more universal than anything that can be experimentally verified. 
we can never test by our imperfect experiments whether one set of physical laws or another can be verified down to the last decimal. The Newtonian view, however, was compelled to state and formulate physics as if it were, in fact, subject to such laws. This is now no longer the dominating attitude of physics, and the men who contributed most to its downfall were Boltzmann in Germany and Gibbs in the United States. These two physicists undertook a radical application of an exciting, new idea. Perhaps the use of statistics in physics which, in large measure, they introduced was not completely new, for Maxwell and others had considered worlds of very large numbers of particles which necessarily had to be treated statistically. But what Boltzmann and Gibbs did was to introduce statistics into physics in a much more thoroughgoing way so that the statistical approach was valid not merely for systems of enormous complexity, but even for systems as simple as the single particle in a field of force. Statistics is the science of distribution, and the distribution contemplated by these modern scientists was not concerned with large numbers of similar particles, but with the various positions and velocities from which a physical system might start. In other words, under the Newtonian system the same physical laws apply to a variety of systems starting from a variety of positions and with a variety of momenta. The new statisticians put this point of view in a fresh light. They retained indeed the principle according to which certain systems may be distinguished from others by their total energy, but they rejected the supposition according to which systems with the same total energy may be clearly distinguished indefinitely and described forever by fixed causal laws. There was, actually, an important statistical reservation implicit in Newton's work, though the 18th century, which lived by Newton, ignored it. No physical measurements are ever precise, and what we have to say about a machine or other dynamic system really concerns not what we must expect when the initial positions and momenta are given with perfect accuracy, which never occurs, but what we are to expect when they are given with attainable accuracy. This merely means that we know not the complete initial conditions, but something about their distribution. The functional part of physics, in other words, cannot escape considering uncertainty and the contingency of events. It was the merit of Gibbs to show for the first time a clean-cut scientific method for taking this contingency into consideration. The historian of science looks in vain for a single line of development. Gibbs' work, while well cut out, was badly sewed and it remained for others to complete the job that he began. The intuition on which he based his work was that, in general, a physical system belonging to a class of physical systems, which continues to retain its identity as a class, eventually reproduces in almost all cases the distribution which it shows at any given time over the whole class of systems. In other words, under certain circumstances a system runs through all the distributions of position and momentum which are compatible with its energy, if it keeps running long enough. This last proposition, however, is neither true nor possible in anything but trivial systems. Nevertheless, there is another route leading to the results which Gibbs needed to bolster his hypothesis. The irony of history is that this route was being explored very thoroughly in Paris at exactly the time when Gibbs was working in New Haven, and yet it was not until 1920 that the Paris work met the New Haven work in a fruitful union. I had, I believe, the honor of assisting at the birth of the first child of this union. Gibbs had to work with theories of measure and probability which were already at least 25 years old and were grossly inadequate to his needs. At the same time, 
however. Borel and Liebescu in Paris were devising the theory of integration which was to prove opposite to the Gibbsian ideas. Borel was a mathematician who had already made his reputation in the theory of probability and had an excellent physical sense. He did work leading to this theory of measure, but he did not reach the stage in which he could close it into a complete theory. This was done by his pupil Liebescu, who was a very different sort of person. He had neither the sense of physics nor an interest in it. Nonetheless Liebescu solved the problem put by Borel, but he regarded the solution of this problem as no more than a tool for Fourier series and other branches of pure mathematics. A quarrel developed between the two men when they both became candidates for admission to the French Academy of Sciences, and only after a great deal of mutual denigration, did they both receive this honor. Borel, however, continued to maintain the importance of Liebescu's work in his own as a physical tool but I believe that I myself, in 1920, was the first person to apply the Liebescu integral to a specific physical problem, that of the Brownian motion. This occurred long after Gibbs' death, and his work remained for two decades one of those mysteries of science which work even though it seems that they ought not to work. Many men have had intuitions well ahead of their time, and this is not least true in mathematical physics. Gibbs' introduction of probability into physics occurred well before there was an adequate theory of the sort of probability he needed. But for all these gaps it is, I am convinced, Gibbs rather than Einstein or Heisenberg or Planck to whom we must attribute the first great revolution of 20th century physics. This revolution has had the effect that physics now no longer claims to deal with what will always happen, but rather with what will happen with an overwhelming probability. At the beginning in Gibbs' own work this contingent attitude was superimposed on a Newtonian base in which the elements whose probability was to be discussed were systems obeying all of the Newtonian laws. Gibbs' theory was essentially new, but the permutations with which it was compatible were the same as those contemplated by Newton. What has happened to physics since is that the rigid Newtonian basis has been discarded or modified, and the Gibbsian contingency now stands in its complete nakedness as the full basis of physics. It is true that the books are not yet quite closed on this issue and that Einstein and, in some of his phases, de Broglie, still contend that a rigid deterministic world is more acceptable than a contingent one, but these great scientists are fighting a rearguard action against the overwhelming force of a younger generation. One interesting change that has taken place is that in a probabilistic world we no longer deal with quantities and statements which concern a specific real universe as a whole but ask instead questions which may find their answers in a large number of similar universes. Well, I'm going to leave it off right there, and um, I want to end with this really interesting article that I came across, and it poses the question, um, what would the father of cybernetics think about AI today? Uh, it says, looking back on <laughs> Norbert Wiener's uh, 1950s book, The Human Use of Human Beings, uh, this was written by Seth Lloyd on February, two, February 28, 2019, published at 4 o'clock, which goes as follows, and we'll be wrapping up pretty soon here as well. Hello, I am Madam Butterfly, and I'm your host, Jingles Back, with an article, and
and we are gonna dive right into this. It looks pretty good, and I'm so excited. And it says, uh, The Human Use of Human Beings. Milbert Weiner's 1950 popularization of his highly influential book, Cybernetics or Control and Communication in the Animal and the Machine, 1948, investigates the interplay between human beings and machines in a world in which machines are becoming more, ever more um, conceptually compatible and powerful. Uh, it is a remarkable uh, parasitic book and uh, remarkably wrong. Written at the time, written at the height of the Cold War, it uh, contains a chilling reminder of the dangers of towering organizations and societies and the danger to societies and, and of the danger to danger to democracy when it tries to combat totalitarianism with totalitarianism's own weapons. So a brief rundown of this article. Uh, it goes over what Wiener got right, what Wiener got wrong, uh, technological overstimulation and the uh, external risks of the singularity. Um, it goes over the arguments for singularities Singularity, skepticism, skepticism. Uh, why are we here? I don't, I don't, I don't know everything like that. It's just too much I hate. But uh, yeah, let's just go ahead and start from the top. Wiener's cybernetics looks looks in close scientific detail, looks in scientific detail at the process of control via feedback, cybernetics from the ancient Greek for Hellenism is the etymology, eto, etymological uh, basis of our word governor, which is what James Watt called his uh, path-breaking um, feedback control device that transformed the use of uh, steam engine, a steam engine, because he was uh, immersed in problems of control. Wiener saw the word as a set of complex interlocking feedback loops in which sensors, signals, and uh, activators such as engines, engines interact via an interact via an intricate exchange of signals and information. The engineering applications of cybernetics were tremendously influential and uh, effective, giving rise to rocket robots, automated assembly lines, and a host of precision engineering techniques, in other words, to the basis of contemporary industrial society. Wiener had greater ambitions for cybernetics concepts, however, in the human use of human beings, he spells out his thoughts in, an ap in his application to topics as diverse as the thought, um, equipment, Maxwell's demon, human language, the 
brain. The brain uh, insects. Uh, insects metabolism, the legal system, the role of technological innovation of, in government and religion. These border applications of cybernetics were an also unequivalent failure, unequivocal failure. Uh, various vigorously hyped from the late 1940s to the early 1960s to a degree similar to the hype of computer and communication technology that led to the dot-com crash of 2000-2001. Cybernetics delivered statistics or satellites and telephone switching systems but generated few of any useful developments in social and social organization and society at large. Nearly 70 years later, however, the human use of human beings has more tech, has more to teach us humans than it did the first time around. Perhaps the most remarkable um, features of the book is that it introduces a large number of topics concerning human machines interacting, interactions that are still of considerable relevance. Uh, dark in tone, the book seems... The, the books make several predictions about uh, disasters to come in the second half of the 21st century, many of which are almost identical to uh, predictions that were made about the, the second half of the 21st. For example, Wiener's forecast a moment in the future of the 1950s where humans, which humans would uh, secede Seed control society to a cybernetic artificial intelligence, which would then proceed to wreak havoc on humankind. The automation of manufacturing, Wiener predicted, would both uh, create large advances in productivity and display many works workers and displace many workers from their jobs. A sequence of events that did indeed come to pass in the uh, eluding decades. Unless society could find productive counterparts for those misplaced uh, workers, uh, Wiener, Warner, Wiener warned revolt could ensue, but Wiener failed to foresee uh, um, surgical technological developments. Like many, like pretty much all uh, technologies of the 1950s, he failed to predict the computer revolution. Computers, he thought, would eventually fall in price from thousands of dollars to hundreds of dollars in the 1950s, uh, dollars to tens of thousands. Neither he nor his computer um, computees anticipated the tremendous ex exploration, tremendous explosion of computer uh, power that would follow the development of the transfer and the intricated uh, circuit. Finally, because of his emphasis and control, Wiener would not foresee a technological world in which innovation and self-organization bubble from the bottom rather than imposing, rather than being imposed from the top. Foreseeing the veils of totalitarianism, political, scientific, and religious, Wiener saw the world in a deeply pessimistic light. He 
he took his book warned of catastrophic cataclysmic that awaited us if we didn't mend our ways fast. The current world of human beings and machines more than a half a century after its publication is more is much more complex and richer and combines a much wider variety of politics, social and scientific systems that then he was able to uh, envision the warnings of what would what of what will happen if you do wrong. However, for example, control of the entire internet by a global totalitarian regime remains as relevant and pressing today as it was in the 1950s. What Wiener got right and what Wiener got wrong. Or what he got right. Let's start there. Wiener's most famous mathematical work focused on problems of signal analysis and the effects of noise. During World War II, he developed techniques for aiming uh, anti-aircraft fire by making models that would predict the future trajectory of an airplane by exploiting extrapolating from its past behavior in cybernetics and the human use of human beings Wiener notes that this uh, past behavior includes quirks and habits of the human pilot thus a mechanized, a mechanized device can predict the behavior of humans like Alan Turing whose uh, turning test suggested that uh, computing machines could give responses to questions that were indistinguishable from um, human responses. Wiener was fascinated by the notion of capturing human behavior by mathematical uh, by mathematical uh, description in the 1940s. He applied the, his knowledge of control and feedback loops to neuromuscular feedback in the living systems and was responsible for bringing Warner McCall and Walter Pitts to MIT where they did their pioneer work on artificial neural networks. Uh, Wiener's central insight was that the world should be understood in terms of information. Complex systems, systems such as organisms, brains, and human societies consist of interlocking feedback loops in which signals exchange different symbiotic results in complex but subtle behavior. When excuse me, when feedback loops break down, the system op, uh, goes unstable. He constructed a compelling picture of how complex the biological systems function. A picture uh, function a picture that is by large that is by and large uh, universally accepted today. Wiener's vision of information as the central equity in governing the behavior the behavior of complex systems was remarkable at the time. Nowadays when cars and refrigerators are jammed with uh, microprocessing and much of society much of human societies revolves around computers and cell phones connected by the internet it seems it seems prosaic to emphasize the Sensuality of information, uh, com com computation, and communication in Wiener's time. However, the digital 
The first digital computer had only just one in, into existence, and the internet was not even a twinkle in the in the technological eye. Uh, Wiener's powerful con- conception of not just uh, engineering complex systems, but all complex systems as revolting around cycles of signals and uh, computing led to led to tremendous contribution to the development of complex human-made systems. The, the, the methods he and other developers of the control of missiles, for example, were later put to work in building the uh, Saturn V moon rocket, one of the most crowning engineering achieve- achievements of the 20th century. In, in particular, Wiener's application of cybernetic concepts on the brain and the and to computerize uh, perception are the direct uh, persecutors of today's neural network-based deep learning circuits and of artificial intelligence itself, but current development in these fields have uh, diverged from from his vision and their future developments that we know well affect the human use of human well affect the human use both of human beings and of machines. Uh, what Wiener got wrong. It is exactly an extension of the cybernetics idea to to human beings that Wiener's conceptions missed the target. Setting aside his reminiscence on language, law, and human society for the moment, look at a uh, Look at a humbler but potentially useful innovation that he thought was imminent in 1950. Wieners notes that prosthetic limbs would be much more effective if their uh, waivers could communicate directly with their prosthetics by their own um, neural signaling, receiving information about pressure and positioning from the limbs, and directing the subsequent motion. This turned... Uh, out to be a much harder problem than Wiener than Wiener uh, envisioned. Uh, Seventy years down the road, prosthetic limbs that incorporate neural feedback are still in the very early stages. Uh, Wiener's concept was an excellent one, but it's just that the problem of interfacing uh, neural signaling with Interfacing neural signaling with mechanical uh, electri- electronic devices is hard. Most significantly, Wiener, along with pretty much everyone else in the 1950s, greatly underappreciated the potential of digital com- of digital computation. As noted, Wiener's mathematical co- contributions were to a- were to the analysis of signals and noises, and his ana- analytical methods applied to uh, continuously varying on analog signals along the participation in the wartime development of digital co- of digital computation. He never forgot. He never foresaw the potential exploding of computer power brought by the uh, introduction and progressive minimization of semiconductor circuits. This is hardly Wiener's fault. The transmission haven't 
The transmission hasn't been invented yet, and the vacuum tube technology of digital computers he, he was familiar with was chunky, unreliable, and unscalable to ever to ever larger devices in an appendix in the 1948 edition of Cybernetics. He uh, anticipates chess-playing computers and predicts that they will bring be able to look two or three moves ahead. He might have been surprised to learn that within a half a century, a computer would beat the human world champion on chess. The world human champion chess player. This is really interesting information. I think that... I think that when... Mr. Wiener decided to talk about his uh, his stance on um, prosthetic limbs. He was definitely onto something. Definitely an underrated perspective, in my opinion. Technical technological overstimulation of movement and the external risks of. Uh, singularity. When Wiener wrote his book, a significant example of technological overstimulation was to, was about to occur. The 1950s saw the first efforts at developmental developing artificial intelligence by researching as much as such as Herbert Simon, John McKenzie, and Marvin Misty, who began to program computers to perform simple tasks and construct rudimentary robots. The success of this initial effort inspired Simon to declare that machines will be capable within 20 years of doing any work a man can do. Excuse me. Such predictions turned out to be... spectacularly uh, wrong. As they became more powerful, computers got and got better and better at playing chess because they could systematically generate and evaluate a vast selection of possibilities, uh, future moves, but the majority of predictions of AI robotic maids turned out to be illusionary. When Deep Blue beat Geary at chest in 1997, the most powerful room-cleaning robot was a Roomba, which moving around... <laughs> which moved around vacuuming at random squeakies when it got uh, caught under the couch. The technological prediction, and particularly Canny, gave that technological progress by a series of uh, refinements halted by obstacles and otherwise, and overcome by um, innovation, many obstacles and some innovations can be anticipated, but more cannot. In my own work with uh, ex experimented on building quantum computers, I technically find that some of the technological steps I accept, expect to uh, expect to be easy turn out to be impossible, whereas some of the tasks I imagine to be impossible turn out to be easy. You don't know until you try. In the 1950s, partly inspired by the conversation with Wiener John von Neumann, 
introduced the notion of technological singularity. Technologies tend to improve exponentially, doubling in power or sensitivity over time. Uh, some over some integral for time. Uh, for example, since 1950, computer, computer technology has been doubled in power roughly over two years, and observation, and observation enshrined as uh, Moore's Law, Von Newton, exploited from the um, observed ex exponential rate of technological improvements to predict that technological progress will become uh, incomprehensibly rapid and um, complicated outside human capabilities and are not to a uh, distant future. Indeed, if one exploits the growth of raw computing power uh, expressed in terms of bits and bit clips in the future at its current rate, computers should match human um, should match human uh, brains sometime in the next two to four decades, depending on how one estimates the information processing power of human brains. So this is a really good article, and there's a ton of really great information. Uh, I'll be posting this on the Facebook page. Um, not the Frequency Family Facebook page, but the original Frequency Babe. Facebook page um, as soon as I um, am finished but thank you so much for listening and taking the time to sit with me today uh, I definitely enjoyed this book and I'm excited to get into more information about it because the more I read the more intrigued I become um, so yeah more to come in the future thank you so much for listening uh, Madam Butterfly out